Stacy, if I had uh, uh, a top 10 list of uh, board members ever that I've uh, worked with, uh, Stacy would be on, uh, on that list. Her uh, ability to be perceptive, uh, the humor that she brings, and the relational warmth that she brings to context is really, really a great thing. So. I also uh, want to honor Yvonne Devon, who's part of your congregation. Yvonne uh, heads up an important ministry for us called uh, uh, Advocates for Victims of Abuse, uh, helping uh, churches uh, be more supportive and engaging around domestic abuse. And, you know, over time, a lot of, t uh, a lot of programs begin to kind of lose energy. If anything, uh, the program that Yvonne uh, is leading is gaining impact as, as uh, more and more churches, more and more pastors understand how pervasive a problem that can be, and they want to be a better resource to their churches. So why don't you also thank Yvonne for her, uh, her leadership. And even though it's uh, my first time uh, in this church, it's, it's, uh, this Sunday is like uh, homecoming Sunday for me. Um, uh, I used to pastor in San Diego, and my two neighboring pastors were Dwayne Cross and Scott Oas. And uh, so uh, we've been friends, the three of us have been friends for uh, years and years ever, uh, ever since that time. And then Keith Hamilton, uh, who's with us this morning, was actually a youth intern when I was pastoring uh, at a church in the Seattle area. So, uh, so this is a great Sunday for me, so uh, wonderful to be here. Um, well, the story is told of uh, Muhammad Ali that he was um, on a plane, the plane was getting ready to take off. And the flight attendant came over to him and said, excuse me, Mr. Ali, it's about time uh, that we're going to be taking off. Um, you need to put on your seatbelt. To which he said, seatbelt? Seatbelt? Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> to which the flight attendant said, yeah, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. Now put on your seatbelt. <clears throat> You see, God's not looking for people with superhuman power, and you know that because you have a sign that says, no perfect people allowed. God's simply looking for people who are willing to be found faithful. That doesn't mean to be found perfect. Think of all the unconventional, unexpected, messed up, surprising, regular people that God uses in the Bible to make a difference. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was a liar. Moses stuttered. Rahab was a prostitute, David was an adulterer, Isaiah preached naked, Scott, don't get any ideas, <laughs> Jonah ran from God, Job was bankrupt, Abraham was too old, Martha was too worried, Zacchaeus was too short, Timothy was too young, and Lazarus was too dead. <laughs> so, so God's not acting, asking us to be found perfect. He's only asking us to be found faithful. And just what does it mean? What's the picture of what it means to be found faithful? Well, you know, Jesus taught in a lot of different ways. He taught uh, just content, like on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. He taught uh, using stories and, and parables. He taught, he taught by using images, like I'm the vine, you are the branches. There's another way Jesus taught that, that we're not so mindful of, but we're going to look at today, and that's that Jesus taught by pointing out examples. There, there are three times in the Gospels where Jesus stops everything and says, do you see what that person just did? That's an example of what it means to be found faithful. 
And we're going to look at those three examples and then see if we can put them all together into an overall example of what it means to be found faithful. Uh, the first example that we're going to look at, uh, and if you want to find this in your Bibles, it's in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. It's the story of the widow who puts in two small coins into the temple offering. Uh, not even two cents worth. They, they were copper, but they weren't as thick and robust as our pennies. So these two copper coins aren't even worth two cents. She, she's at the, at, the, at the margins economically, and Jesus watches her walk up to the offering box, watches her put in her two cents, and then stops absolutely everything. He says to his disciples, do you see what that woman just did? The rich gave out of their excess, but this poor widow has actually put in more with her two pennies, because out of her poverty, she put in everything that she had. You see, her gift was minuscule when measured financially, but it was a huge commitment when measured against what was available to her. And the point is this, in God's economy, something, is, something given in sacrifice is always valuable regardless of the amount. In the economy of God, what matters is not just the amount, but the amount of sacrifice. And why is that? Because sacrifice reflects priority. Covenant pastor Craig Rochelle says this. It's a, it's a wonderful insight. He says this, Sacrifice is when you give up something you love for something you love even more. Sacrifice is when you give up something you love for something you love even more. It reminds me of a time when I was in a, a remote village in Thailand, and uh, some people uh, from the church in that small village uh, invited our group uh, over for a meal, and it was a very modest, uh, uh, really kind of a platform house up on stilts, and just really a platform and, and uh, some uh, very basic uh, woven walls. And as we were uh, uh, coming, into, uh, coming into their house, I noticed a couple chickens in the front clucking uh, peacefully. And uh, then a while later, we, uh, we had dinner, and it was chicken, and, and there was no more clucking. <clears throat> and I realized that uh, this family of very modest means had given up their chickens to, to serve us. And, and I felt bad about that, and... I pulled over our, our missionary and I said, I, I want to go to the market so we can buy a couple chickens to, to replace them for this family. And he said, Gary, you don't have a clue. You don't understand. They weren't sad that they had to give up a chicken. They were proud that they had a chicken to give. It would be offensive to replace it. You see, reluctance says, I have to give something. Gratitude says, I have something to give. Uh, it reminds me of um, our, uh, our youngest daughter. Uh, I was teaching her preschool class at church one time, 
And um, I came up with an object lesson all by myself. The, the subject was um, generosity. And uh, I was proud of myself for coming up with an object lesson all by myself. And uh, so uh, to half the class, I gave two of those little goldfish crackers. And to the other half of the class, I gave no goldfish crackers. So you see where this is going. Half, half the class has two, half the class has none. And I asked a very simple question, now children, what can we do to make sure that everyone has a cracker? And my own daughter, my own flesh and blood, blurted out while clutching two goldfish crackers in her own tight little fist, I know, Dad, you can go to the store and buy some more. <laughs> and what she failed to recognize what she failed to recognize is that the only reason she had been given two crackers in the first place was to give one of them away. But you know, we, we do the same. We can go to God in prayer when we're confronted with, with the needs of the world and, and say, I know God, you can go to your storehouse and get some more. We fail to recognize that we've already been given what we need to be on the solution side of the equation. And I'm not just talking about finances. This widow is an example of whatever we have, whether it's time or talent and resources, that, that we give it to God. And that when we give it to God sacrificially, it's pleasing to Him. To be found faithful, the first mark of being found faithful is to recognize that I do have something to contribute from my time to my talents to my treasure and be willing to offer it to God in sacrifice. That's the first principle, that to sacrifice is to give up something we love for something we love even more. Our love for God, our faithfulness to God will show up in the sacrifices that we make to put God first. Then the, uh, the second example, when Jesus stops everything, uh, comes in uh, the story of the Roman centurion uh, who asked Jesus to heal his servant. And that story comes in Matthew chapter 8. This Roman soldier is a centurion, an officer in the Roman army. The root, uh, the root for the word centurion is the same as the root for century. It means a hundred and so a century means a hundred years, and a centurion is someone who's in charge of a hundred soldiers. That's what a centurion is. But remember this. <coughs> I may need my uh, that water. I'm, I'm just coming off of bronchitis, so even though I feel fine, my, I have this uh, throat that feels like it should be coughing every couple minutes, so. So remember this, that um, the Roman army at the time was an occupying army, an army of conquerors. Israel is a conquered country at this point. It's part of the Roman Empire. So this is not an army to protect the people. It's an army to oppress the people and keep them in line. Anytime there's a force whose sole purpose is to keep people in line, and to remind them of who's in charge, there's going to be deep resentment. 
And the Israelites would have despised the centurion in particular because, again, he wasn't just a soldier. He was a soldier in charge of soldiers. He's the, the visible reminder of the division and the conflict and, and, uh, and the power and control between groups of people. And that's why it's such a surprising story as it unfolds. It's not just about the faith of this centurion. It's about the faith of an enemy. He asked Jesus to heal his servant. In fact, his faith is so strong that he says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word and I know he'll be healed. And what does Jesus do? He stops everything. He stops everyone in their tracks and he commends this man to everyone who's gathered around. And and listen to what he says. Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He could have just said, I haven't found anyone with such great faith. Jesus goes out of his way to say, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He's making a statement about how the gospel is not for a select group of people, but for everyone. And he uses an enemy soldier to make the point. And just so people don't miss that point, He goes on to say, I say to you, many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He uses an enemy soldier and then invokes the patriarchs of Israel. This is an astounding statement of Jesus about faith and about the gospel being for everyone. You know, Jesus lived in, in complex cultural currents. He spent part of his childhood in Egypt. He was raised in a Jewish home, which was part of the Roman Empire. His cross was carried by Simon of Cyrene, who's from the continent of Africa. He's fluent in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. The incarnation is literally impossible, literally impossible without a woman. The cross is witnessed by women, and the resurrection is first announced by women. All of this in a culture where women were marginalized. He used a hated Samaritan as the star of his most famous story, and here he uses an enemy soldier as an object lesson of faith. He moved among the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich. He disappointed every single political persuasion from the radical zealots to the conservative Herodians. The Roman leaders didn't know what to do with him, and the religious leaders wanted to get rid of him. The people who hate Jesus the most Hate him for not hating the things that they hate. See, everywhere Jesus went, he moved among those who would otherwise sneer at each other. And he calls us to do the same in taking his unconditional love to all. And that's the point of the Acts 1-8 map of the mission. Remember Jesus saying in Acts 1-8, that we're to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And, and from uh, where we live and the distance of 
geography and time, we think that's, well, that must be radiating distance. But the hearers would have heard it very differently. They would have heard it as, as radiating cultures and, and crossing cultures. Judea, that's same by, or nearby same culture. Samaria is nearby cross-culture. And ends of the earth is far away all cultures. Judea being nearby same culture, that's the culture that we're comfortable with. But remember the rivalry of cultures with the Samaritans. When we're called to Samaria, we're called to those nearby with whom we're culturally uncomfortable. And the ends of the earth means uh, the gospel calls us to cultures we don't even yet know how to relate to. Uh, the covenant started among uh, Swedish uh, immigrants to the United States. Uh, we were founded in 1885 among Swedish immigrants. And guess what? For the first third of their history, they still spoke Swedish and planted churches where, where Swedes live. Anywhere where it's cold and miserable and looks like Sweden, there's a covenant church. <laughs> it took a while before they realized, oh, you can actually move to Arizona? But for a third of our history, it, it, was, it was a very insulated movement. And then, and then began an outreach uh, to, to, uh, to uh, transition to English. So, so there could be more outreach to uh, to English-speaking populations. And then in the last third of our history, we've recognized there is a grand mosaic to the kingdom of God. And now we're one of the most ethnically diverse denominations in America. 30% of our congregations are ethnic or among populations of color. We don't always get it right, but just because we don't always get it right doesn't mean it isn't right. And so we we press forward. And, and so names like Carlson and Rodriguez, Swanson and Yee, Erickson and Alaska name Olyumik, now all stand together at the Lord's table. Do we want to be found faithful? The, the second mark is, is where Jesus stops everything and says, wow, my kingdom is for all people. And, and so for us to say, well, that feast is not just for me, but I sit at the table that, where God invites others to join across the fractures and the resentments of the world. God creates a new kingdom, and, and at the cross there is level ground and, and common ground. Then the, the third episode where Jesus stops everything is in Matthew 26. This is in the last week of his life, and this is the episode where his hair is anointed with oil. This takes place in the, in the turmoil of, of, uh, of the, the week of the cross and then the resurrection. Uh, he's already entered Jerusalem, and, and the crowds have already been riled up. There's tension in the air, and very soon Judas is going to betray him. In this passage, he's pulled back a couple miles to the, to the village of Bethany, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's staying in the home of, of Simon the leper. And, and they're joining together in this meal, and he can just kind of feel this, this pervasive sense of gratefulness, of Simon saying, Jesus, you have changed my life. And, and you can imagine the other, gifts, uh, other guests are, are sharing their stories because, because in comes this woman who, who Jesus has has reached out to and, and, and changed her life. And, and uh, in, the, in the sharing of that meal, she, 
she breaks open a bottle of perfume and, and pours it onto the hair of Jesus. I, I guess the closest equivalent is like a, a really rejuvenating combination shampoo and hair massage at a day spa. Not that I've ever been to one, but that's what Scott tells me it's like. <laughs> and, and the disciples get upset. And they begin to murmur that this expensive commodity could have been put to better use. But Jesus stops everything. And he says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing. Well, what's what's going on here? What you have is an extravagant display of devotion, way out of scale with what seems reasonable to the point of even seeming to be irresponsible. Now, note that her action isn't being praised as the routine and the norm. Jesus is clear to point out that that he's not going to be with them much longer. And in this outpouring of the heart, that's the context that causes her action to be noted. It's in the context of the magnitude of the moment. But the point is, there are times when exceptional, memorable, extravagant, over-the-top displays are the best and most tangible way to communicate a depth of devotion and care and gratitude. It may not be something that's sustainable, but it's something that is attainable at least one time. My wife, Nancy, loves quilts. And uh, we live in the Chicago area, not too far from some Amish communities in Indiana. And so I arranged for her to meet with an Amish quilt master to design an heirloom quality quilt for our bed. Now, based on the cost, I'm not really sure the Amish have taken a vow of poverty. Now, would I do that every anniversary? No. In fact, dear, unless we make it to 100th anniversary, this is probably it. (laughs) But for 25 years of being partners in life and all of its joys and challenges and complexities, the quilt became a tangible way to express a depth of thankfulness, affection, and appreciation. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are today talking about it right now. And so to be found faithful moving forward, it requires not just faithfulness in the routine, but there are those exceptional moments of devotion that can only be expressed in exceptional acts. Like a fragrant perfume when we break ourselves open in devotion and pour ourselves out, the sweet aroma of the kingdom of God is released and becomes an example that inspires others. So, what does it mean to be found faithful? Let's try to put it all together. With the widow, it means we give it our all without holding anything back from God. We know that the sacrifices we make Show the priority that God is in our life. We give it our all without holding anything back. 
When we add in the centurion, it means that we give it our all, joining with all of God's people. And then adding the woman with the perfume, it means we give it our all, joining with all of God's people, all stemming from a grateful heart. And why is it so important to be found faithful? Because ultimately that is how the kingdom of God moves forward. God in his craziness said, I know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out a people who will love me and who will love my world. And that's how my heart will be extended for others to see. I know it's within your heart to want to be found faithful. God's not asking you to be found perfect. But will you give yourself to him in a God-first life, joining with all of God's people and doing it all from a heart of devotion? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to join in this place. And even in being in this place today, Lord, we, we understand all of the countless faithful acts that have taken uh, for this church to be birthed and for this church to be nurtured and for lives to be touched. And so in being in this place, we're reminded of, of what it means to be found faithful. And Lord, it's our heart to want to be found faithful still. So may we understand the depth of your love for us. May we dwell in that love. May we be secure in that love. And then, Lord, help us to love those around us. We love you, Lord. We commit to walking by your side. We thank you for your graciousness that we can be confident that you will be walking with us at every step. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.